Welcome to Lethal Autonomous Weapons, 10 Things We Want to Know. This is Episode 5, Can Lethal Autonomous Weapons Used by Police Respect Human Rights? You are listening to an interview with Andreas Bangalow, hosted by Paola Gator and Alessandra Spadoro. Thanks, Private Ryan, and hello, everyone. I'm Paula Gaeta, Professor of International Law at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies, and I'm here today with my colleague, Alessandra Spadaro. Hello, I'm Alessandra Spadaro. I'm a research associate in the Lethal Autonomous Weapons and War Crimes Research Project, led by Paula. The question for today's episode is how the use of lethal autonomous weapons in domestic law enforcement affects the enjoyment of human rights. Uh, For the listeners who might not be familiar with this term, with domestic law enforcement, we mean the exercise of police functions relating to the maintenance of law and order in peacetime. But this topic is very important, but it's a bit underexplored in academia, uh, because usually the issue of autonomous weapon system focuses on the uh, compatibility of those weapons with international humanitarian law, in, in, in armed conflict, in warfare. Uh, today's guest, Andrea Spagnolo, on the contrary, uh, has dealt with the issue from the angle of law enforcement. Um, Andrea Spagnolo is assistant professor at the University of Turin in Italy, and is also a member of the International Institute of Humanitarian Law. So you will hear quite a few Italian accents in this episode, I guess. Uh, welcome, Andrea. Thank you very much, Paola, and thank you very much, Alessandra. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'd like to remind our listeners before we start that if they're interested um, in the papers that Andrea wrote on the topic that we will deal with in today's episode, uh, we will add them to our show notes. So don't forget to check them out. So starting with the first question, Andrea, as I mentioned uh, before, usually the question of uh, autonomous weapon system is addressed uh, with respect to, to their use in armed conflict. And therefore, when it comes to the relevant legal framework, the problem is the international humanitarian law um, compatibility of the use of these weapons. But I would like to know, do we have already examples of autonomous weapon systems that are used, for instance, by the police in a law enforcement operation? Yes, indeed. Uh, however, uh, uh, it is important to note uh, that uh, the examples from the practice uh, are not strictly related to fully autonomous weapons, uh, but to weapons that, uh, to a certain degree, are still remotely uh, controlled uh, by the police. Uh, we have, for example, uh, a practice from the U.S., Uh, where uh, a dog, uh, a a robot dog, uh, has been used uh, for for these kind of purposes, uh, uh, in particular being used to blow up a place uh, in which uh, a potential terrorist was uh, about to explode in an explosive device. Uh, So, so far, uh, the use of this kind of Uh, algorithmic and robotic weapons, it seems to be limited to remotely uh, partially controlled weapons. Uh, However, uh, in practice, we see that, for example, in the US, again, 
uh, a lot of funding is going to be transferred or is already being transferred from the defense department to the law enforcement agency for the development of uh, fully autonomous uh, weapons. Uh, another example from uh, the practice means that signals uh, that uh, uh, actually uh, fully autonomous weapons are going to be used is that very recently, March 2021, a bill was introduced by the New York City Council uh, in order to prohibit the New York City Police Department from using uh, or threatening to use robots armed with a weapon. So this means uh, that there is uh, uh, a sensible problem linked to uh, the use of autonomous weapons, even uh, for law enforcement purposes. And of course, Andrea, when you speak of the full autonomous weapons, you are thinking of uh, autonomous weapons that may uh, use lethal force without uh, necessarily a human operator um, instructing huh, the weapon. What do you mean by full autonomous weapons in this context? When we refer to fully autonomous weapons, we refer to weapons that no, do not need uh, any human intervention to engage a target. So that they can autonomously engage a target. And I would say they can autonomously decide when and most importantly, who to target. Right, uh, Andrea, this is so interesting. And also, thank you for the examples you gave us. Um, but if there is you know, already a limited use of some um, robotic weapons, and maybe one day we'll see fully autonomous weapons being used, why is it that academics, but also states in diplomatic fora, have not really paid attention, do you think, to the use of autonomous weapons in law enforcement? Um, actually, um, the answer that some states are providing uh, is that actually there is no problem because there will be no fully autonomous weapon used uh, in, uh, during armed conflict. So there is a sort of denial. States are denying the fact that fully autonomous weapons uh, will be used in the future for uh, the conduct of hostilities. And we can apply this answer also for the purposes of uh, police operations and more in general law enforcement. Uh, so uh, as far as states uh, is cons are concerned, uh, we I can provide you this answer. As far as scholars uh, are concerned, uh, I, I, can, uh, um, I can provide you uh, an answer based on a self-reflection. Uh, the scarcity of practice makes it very difficult to approach this issue from the angle of the protection of uh, human rights because you need to stretch uh, some categories in order to fit uh, into the characteristic of a weapon that... Uh, apart from the few examples that I mentioned, of course, there are other examples, uh, are, so, uh, are not so many. Uh, thank you, Andrea, for this clarification. Nonetheless, as you uh, say, some scholars, including yourself, have started tackling uh, the problem of the development of autonomous weapon system in domestic law enforcement operation from the angle of international human rights law that would become, therefore, 
the exclusive relevant uh, international legal framework uh, regulating hmm, uh, the use of lethal force by uh, law enforcement uh, agents. And in this regard, you pointed out in your writings that clearly the predominant, let's say, the most relevant human right at stake uh, is the right to life. Uh, could you please explain to us uh, what are the standards that are requested under international human rights law uh, in respect to the protection of the right to life in law enforcement operation? So as far as the uh, protection of the right to life uh, is concerned, uh, I believe that the most important dimension of this right uh, is the positive dimension, so the positive obligation uh, to protect a life. Uh, if you want to provide a definition of what is the positive obligation uh, to protect life, we can quote the European Court of Human Rights uh, when she said that the positive obligation to protect life is the positive obligation to take all appropriate steps to safeguard life for the purposes of Article uh, 2. Uh, so, uh, when we uh, apply this uh, uh, obligation uh, in the field of the use of autonomous weapon systems, uh, we need to go uh, uh, back in the chain of the manufacture of the, uh, of the weapons, because if we uh, want to apply properly uh, the positive duty to protect life, uh, we need to impose to state, uh, so we need to interpret uh, this obligation in order to bind the state to introduce safeguards for the right to life since the beginning of the manufacturing uh, process. Uh, and the manufacturing process, uh, when it comes to autonomous weapon systems relate to the manufacture of algorithms. So algorithms should be designed in order to comply with this positive duty to protect uh, the right uh, to life. One other aspect, one other important aspect of the positive obligation to protect the right uh, to life uh, pertain to uh, the duty uh, upon states uh, to provide effective safeguards and effective remedies to individuals who are deprived of life uh, in general and uh, by uh, autonomous weapon systems. And I would say that in this case, as far as remedies are concerned, uh, one corollary of the right to life is the duty to provide an explanation uh, when an individual is deprived. Uh, this is a, a right that not only of the individual, of course, who is deprived, but also for to the relatives uh, that uh, also the relatives of the victims uh, enjoy. And uh, I would say that this is a critical issue because how can you provide an explanation if the decision to target an individual is taken by a robot using algorithms? Uh, we can say that, of course, this is not something that lawyers uh, can do, interpret uh, uh, the so-called lingua franca uh, of uh, uh, algorithms. How can you uh, really read uh, 
a binary code of an algorithm. How can you really explain? According to me, but this is a personal view, it is almost impossible to cope with this duty as it is formulated in the jurisprudence on human rights. You've told us what the standards are if the weapons are deployed and if they allegedly kill someone arbitrarily, what are the obligations of the state and so forth. But I guess my question, and I think our listeners might be wondering, is in the first place, when is it that a state in a law enforcement scenario with or without a lethal autonomous weapon can use lethal force? I mean, uh, of course, there are some requirements uh, that are firmly established in uh, human rights law uh, and they are uh, fully uh, applied by human rights court. Uh, court and, uh, uh, two requirements, so the requirement of, of strict necessity on one side and the requirement of proportionality. Uh, so the requirement of strict necessity uh, is, uh, uh, is very important to highlight the adjective strict, which marks the difference between human rights and international humanitarian law. So when, uh, uh, as we are dealing with uh, international human rights law, it is important to note uh, that the deprivation of life uh, must follow a decision by states, uh, authorities, that the deprivation of life is really necessary uh, to pursue uh, a very limited list of objectives. Uh, for example, the protection of national uh, security is for sure one of, of the objectives uh, uh, that can be uh, pursued by national authorities. Also, the protection of others, individuals, so the strict necessity can be also viewed in an, or, in an horizontal view. Uh, but the scrutiny on this requirement must, must be very, very strict. As, uh, uh, as for the second requirement, the requirement of proportionality, uh, of course, the, 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 uh, the decision uh, to employ a weapon uh, that potentially uh, deprives uh, the life of individuals must follow uh, a very careful balancing test. Namely, national authorities must verify that there are no other means available to pursue the objectives that we uh, mentioned before. So, Andre, let's try to clarify for our listeners with some examples. So, let's imagine that uh, there is a suspected terrorist uh, who is uh, about to blow up in a, in a shop in the in downtown or whatever, and there are informations uh, that uh, he will be going to, to do so, and the authorities have at their disposal and autonomous weapons uh, which could help identify where the person is located and can autonomously, let's say, engage uh, with the target no? to eliminate the threat. To the extent that the use of such full autonomous weapons in the future could be problematic to respect the standards um, for the protection of the right to life that you have just mentioned. 
this uh, actually is one uh, of the example that uh, is very similar to uh, the practice that I mentioned before. Uh, actually, uh, the practice in the US uh, in which uh, a, a robot dock was used for exactly this purpose uh, can be again uh, quoted uh, in order to uh, try to give an answer. In that case, uh, there was harsh criticism because the dog robot was used to uh, blow up the place where the terrorist was uh, uh, inside. Uh, therefore, uh, in, in this case, uh, when we uh, engage I would say a fully autonomous weapons, so uh, weapons without any uh, control, without any possibility for the human to intervene. I would say that the risk is uh, when uh, the, the weapon is going to target the person uh, without any chance to change uh, its mind, the mind of, of the robot, if the situation changes and therefore uh, makes it unnecessary uh, to kill the individual. Let's take, for example, the possibility that the terrorist in that place is going to surrender, or maybe that he's going to accept some conditions, or maybe that he's going to accept some talk. Uh, if police forces deploy a weapon, uh, an autonomous weapons, without any possibility to intervene, uh, with the sole objective to target uh, the terrorists, the individual. Uh, so maybe we, the, the police forces will lose possibility to uh, respect the, the principle of strict uh, necessity and also the uh, proportionality test. Because how can we say that a weapon uh, can apply the uh, proportionality test in such uh, a scenario? So in other episodes, we've discussed uh, international humanitarian law. Um, and our listeners might know that under international humanitarian law, when um, a state develops uh, or acquires a new weapon, um, it has an obligation to determine whether the employment of this new weapon would comply with international humanitarian law. And this rule is enshrined in a treaty, uh, Article 36 of the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions. But in human rights law treaties, uh, there isn't um, a rule like this. Um, so there is no specific uh, rule that says that states have to uh, review uh, the weapon before they plan to use it, uh, including when it comes maybe in the future to fully autonomous weapons that are used in peacetime law enforcement. Do you think that nonetheless states have some obligations uh, in relation to the development and the use of autonomous weapons in law enforcement? Uh, indeed, yes. Uh, although, uh, as you said, there is no uh, a conventional uh, rule as uh, Article 36, uh, I would say is that uh, states are limited uh, in choosing uh, means and methods of, for law enforcement by all the standards that are flowing from uh, uh, the rules uh, which uh, are uh, contained in human rights treaties and as elaborated by the jurisprudence of uh, 
European international uh, and national human rights uh, uh, institution. This is part of, for example, of the uh, jurisprudence of the uh, uh, European Court of Human Rights. Uh, for example, in the Ergi versus Turkey case, uh, the European Court of Human Rights said that uh, states are not uh, free uh, to choose whatever they want as far as means and methods for law enforcement are concerned. And the same, the court uh, uh, stated in the Izayeva, Yusupova, and Mazayeva uh, versus Russia. Uh, so this means that uh, uh, although there doesn't exist a specific limitation, uh, all the articles that uh, are applicable to states for the conduct of law enforcement contained indirectly uh, a limitation for them uh, upon them for uh, using uh, uh, weapons and in particular autonomous weapons. But Andrea, I have a problem with, uh, I ask you a provocative question. I mean, we know that the countries developing these weapons uh, in the military field are particularly US and China and Russia. And when it comes to China and the US, at least, uh, we don't have them uh, subjected to the European, Human, European Court of Human Rights case law or the European Convention of Human Rights. So what is the relevance of this, um, well, these obligations under human rights treaty law for those states? That is a really uh, uh, tricky question that, I mean, highlight the fact that maybe as European lawyers, we are, we are a little bit biased by the jurisprudence of the European Court uh, of Human Rights. But uh, uh, if I may, when it comes to international instruments for the protection of human rights, and I am referring in particular to the International uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the very last general comment of the Human Rights Committee, comment, general comment number uh, 36, uh, uh, highlighted uh, the positive dimension of uh, protecting the right to life. And uh, uh, apart from this, uh, uh, the, the work that has been done uh, to, uh, um, uh, to, to foster the debate on the autonomous weapons system has been uh, uh, um, uh, brought also uh, in the territory of the protection of human rights. All the uh, uh, reports from the uh, special rapporteur, the late uh, Christoph Heinz, uh, mention the, the, the protection of human rights uh, uh, as a limit for the study, development, acquisition, and then the use of autonomous weapons uh, uh, systems. So therefore, I would say that our regional uh, perspective uh, uh, matches with international, uh, international standards, at least as, as this uh, interpretation of the right to life uh, uh, is uh, uh, concerned. Uh, of course, uh, we cannot underestimate the fact uh, that states are very tempted by recourse for, to these kind of weapons because they don't cost uh, in terms of the loss of life of police officers. Right. And Andrea, you, you mentioned correctly that there are many other human rights that are at stake when it comes to the use of autonomous weapons in law enforcement. And for instance, we discussed uh, with our guests in episode one that the collection of data is fundamental for 
the correct functioning of fully autonomous weapons. And of course, this would also apply if one day fully autonomous weapons are also used in peacetime law enforcement, uh, because this way maybe they can also more effectively comply with the standards that we discussed of uh, strict necessity and proportionality concerning the use of lethal force. But um, does this mass collection of data create a problem for the right to privacy instead? Indeed, uh, Alessandra, uh, I confirm uh, that uh, we are we are in front of a paradox uh, because if you if you want uh, fully autonomous weapons to operate correctly uh, and therefore to engage the right target, uh, you need to provide them uh, with data. Uh, when it comes to law enforcement, I just like to say that this is even more important than in the field of armed conflict, because in law enforcement uh, operation, in police operation, the scenario is more complicated because in, I mean, in the a vast majority of, case, of cases, law enforcement operations are performed in urban scenarios. So a urban scenario uh, is more difficult to cope with by a human and uh, even by uh, a robot. So you need to provide robots with a lot of data. And uh, if you have to provide robots with a lot of data, uh, actually you need to make recourse to the so-called bulk collection of data so the indiscriminate collection of data in this regard i uh, advanced in my two articles the thesis that uh, bulk collection of data is per se uh, a violation of the right uh, to privacy uh, uh, as interpreted as a corollary of uh, the right to respect uh, of private uh, life. Um, in particular, it seems that the bulk collection of data uh, do, does not respect the proportionality uh, test uh, that is to be performed in order to uh, guarantee uh, the respect of the right uh, to privacy and also uh, uh, the problem with the bulk collection of, gata, of data is again the safeguards, the remedies. Uh, so when it comes to the collection of, of data, uh, actually you need to provide individuals also with some safeguards. So for example, in, uh, in the context of judicial pro proceedings, uh, you need to provide individuals with uh, the possibility to access recordings and to ask for their cancellation. Recently, the European Court of Human Rights delivered the judgment to the Big Brother Watch uh, case uh, and apparently, uh, this was not a big win uh, for those who believe that bulk collection of data is per se a violation of the right to privacy, because this judgment, although it recognizes the responsibility of governments uh, when it comes to the bulk collection of data, uh, it simply says that this kind of practice should be accompanied by uh, safeguards and by um, uh, uh, by different safeguards, both in when uh, it comes to the decision to collect data and uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the provision of remedies to individuals. Uh, so this is the state of the heart as far as uh, 
data and the protection of privacy are concerned. Well, but um, Andrea, uh, you also make the point in your writings that the mass collection of data, the bulk collection of data in state surveillance have a, a cascading effect on the enjoyment of other human rights. Is it so? Yes, indeed. Uh, the bulk connection of data uh, might impact other rights. Uh, for example, the right not to be discriminated. Uh, again, the answer uh, is in the manufacturing of these weapons, in the design, in the functioning of, the, on these, of these weapons. Uh, because autonomous weapon systems, in order to operate uh, properly, uh, need to work upon algorithms in which some informations, some parameters are introduced by the humans. So the risk is that uh, government will introduce in the algorithms that governs the activity of autonomous weapons uh, systems some sort of uh, uh, profiles. Uh, maybe uh, uh, some profiles are more keen to be linked, as Paula said before, to a terrorist face. Uh, or maybe some other profiles are more keen to be associated with, with, with a, a thief. And this is a concrete risk, because already these kind of profiling activities are used uh, in trials. For example, there was uh, a, a report uh, published by an investigative journal, ProPublica, that showed that machines used in trials are biased, for example, against black persons. But uh, if you change uh, the field, if you, if you move to uh, the management of migration flows, profiling is, is already used at the borders in order to guarantee or to limit the access to some individuals to the territory of a country. So, again, we are not speaking of uh, 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 a very far future. We are speaking of actual practice. Tick-tock, keep your eye on the clock, humans. Thank you, Ryan. This is uh, Ryan uh, telling us that we have to wrapping up. Uh, but you wanted to ask your usual final question, I guess. Indeed. Asking questions, interacting with your guests, it's all part of machine learning. Before you know it, I'll be doing an entire interview by myself. In the meantime, Andrea, what are three adjectives that come to mind when you think of lethal autonomous weapon systems? Okay, it's very, uh, it's very tricky one. Uh, uh, so uh, the first adjective uh, is maybe contradictory, but the first adjective is human. Uh, um, uh, human, why? Because when it comes to uh, autonomous weapons, uh, the problem is with human judgment. So the, the second adjective is algorithmic. Uh, this is a very uh, uh, known uh, adjective. So this kind of uh, weapons functions on the basis of algorithms. The third adjective, uh, is maybe an obvious one, uh, uh, but it is legal. And uh, I, I refer to this uh, adjective uh, legal. Uh, uh, 
also because I'm inspired by the novel by Isaac Asimov. Uh, and uh, uh, Isaac Asimov, in his well-known I, Robot uh, book, uh, describe a society in which robots are fully integrated, uh, but they are also fully regulated by the framework's three laws of robotics. So maybe it's time for a regulation which takes into account the fact that robots, algorithmic decision-making, autonomous weapon systems are fully integrated in the plans of governments and therefore needs to be regulated. And I advanced in my articles that this regulation must be compatible and also say, inspired by uh, human rights law. Well, I would like to invite Isaac Asimov uh, as a guest to our podcast, but unfortunately I can't. But I like that you referred to him in this episode. And thank you very much for joining us today, Andrea. This conversation has really touched upon uh, challenging aspects of the application of autonomous weapons in domestic law enforcement operation. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Paola. Thank you, Alessandra, for having invited me. It was a real uh, pleasure. And thank you also to Private Ryan. Thanks for your insights. So listeners, please tune in for our next episodes where we will continue our conversations on lethal autonomous weapons, 10 things we wanted to know, and until then, goodbye. Thank you for tuning into episode 5 of Lethal Autonomous Weapons, 10 Things We Want to Know, with Andrea Spangolo. All the books and articles mentioned in this episode are linked in the show notes. There you will also find our contact details and a link to our website, where you will find more episodes and read more about our Lethal Autonomous Weapons and War Crimes Research Project. Thank you for listening. Catch you in the next episode, where we will cover the question, who is responsible for lethal autonomous weapons? Over and out.